Welcome to My Life, Chassidus Applied, episode 372. A a good gebench dear, as we move from Yom Kippur to Sukkot. So this will be a special Sukkot edition. This program is dedicated in merit of Baruch Benyamin ben Menucha Lena, Miriam bas Chayesar Altes, and Yukusil ben Leah Rochel, Rochel Bas Liba Farkash, dedicated by Pinchas Todas Ben Miriam and Sarah Bas Rochel Altes. The fascinating calendar, the Jewish calendar, reflects the very cycles of life. So it should be no surprise that as we move from the first half of Tishrei, this first month of the new year, to the second half, that that too captures two major milestones, two major stages in all of life, and of course on a microcosmic level every year, and in truth every day. So the first half of the month is called the Yom Neroyim, Rosh Hashanah Yom Kippur, the days of awe, from the word Neira, Yira. The second half is called Zman Simchaseinu, time of our joy. Joy and awe are two poles that are critical in life. In the language of Teda, there's Yira and Ava, Chesed and Gvura, or Gvura and Chesed in this case. In the language of the Zohar, based on a posuk, Shirashirim, that the first half of the month is Smeili Tachas Lereshi. My left arm is beneath your head. And the second half, Yimine Techapkeni. And your right arm embraces me. What is this reflecting? The loving relationship between God and the people. After we know the story of. Uh, of the entire month of Tishrei is very much around the fact that after 40 days or 39 days after they received the Torah, the Jewish people built a golden calf. Moshe Rabbeinu broke the tablets, went back on the mountain to beg for forgiveness, and it took him 80 days to succeed. Yom Kippur is the day he came down, 40 days after Rosh Elul, successful, Salachti Kidvarecha. As we said, Yom Kippur night, right after Kol Nidre, three times. God forgave. So this was love. The love between the marriage between God and the Jewish people. The canopy was the Har Sinai. We learned different aspects of Jewish marriage from what happened at Matan Teda. However, there was a betrayal in this marriage. And then reconciliation. Rebuilding. So the whole month of El is actually the month when Moshe Rabbeinu is, is beseeching God for compassion and forgiveness and finally prevails. So Rosh Hashanah Yom Kippur are the conclusion of those last 10 days of Moshe Rabbeinu being on the mountain. So it makes sense that Rosh Hashanah Yom Kippur is days of awe, the awe, the respect, the humility that Moshe Rabbeinu showed that we all have to show as we rebuild a relationship, the first thing is you need to have a sense of humility and awe and respect. After a betrayal, you don't begin by dancing. But then, once there's the reconciliation and the rebuilding, and the second tablets were given at Harsina, at Yom Kippur, 
Then comes Sukkot, the second half, Yemini, the right side, the right arm, Chesed, Simcha now. We start celebrating that which we've accomplished after this whole challenge and rebuilding, which made it even stronger, the relationship and the love. Now there's much to celebrate. So as Masim Chesed is actually celebrating that which Rosh Hashanah Yom Kippur ultimately achieved at the conclusion of those 40 days. So you see here that in life we need to have both aspects. All of us are human beings and flawed. We will make our mistakes. But trust is not built on perfection. It's built on accountability. And accountability is essentially the message of this season. Introspection, the cheshben and nefesh we make through the month of Elul. And then in a very direct way, Rosh Hashanah Yom Kippur, when it becomes formal. And accountability is the glue that allows something to be rebuilt. But then you need the second half. Life can't just be built on respect and awe. You need also the closeness, the intimacy of the sukkah and the dalad minim, which reflect that type of embrace. The sukkah embraces us, the dalad minim internalizes it. We'll speak about that a little more at the end of the program, the chassidus question about sukkahs. So what you see here is that this holiday season, talk about chassidus applied, applying it to our life, offers us tremendous lessons in the cycles of life in general, and what we need in any type of relationship. You always need these two halves, the yira and the ava. You need to have the closeness and you need to have the respect. And especially when something is broken, that is so critical. But it's not just about respect, it's also about closeness. So there you have both sides of the coin, so to speak, and they complement each other. Which is why it says that the schach of the sukkah, the covering of the sukkah, comes from the Anan HaKteris. It comes from the cloud, from the smoke, from the, that was produced by the Kteris, by the incense on Yom Kippur. And other connections where you say, Tiku Bacheder Shefer, Bakesa Liyem Chagenu, Bakesa goes on when it's still covered in Rosh Hashanah, when the new moon, so you don't see a moon. So the, the, the Gilu Berada, the joy and celebration of Rosh Hashanah Yom Kippur, even though there are also days of Simcha, are Berada, it's a celebration, a gilu, a simcha, joy, but it is encased in trembling, in an element of awe and respect. When you're standing before God in the Holy of Holies, you don't begin dancing, even though inside you're very happy, especially when you gain forgiveness. Sukkot comes, but kesel yem chagenu, yem chagenu reveals that which was concealed in Rosh Hashanah Yom Kippur, the simcha that was concealed there. That's why Simchas Teir is such a great Simcha celebration because it's the Simchas Teir even greater than Shavuos. It says Shavuos you should dance with the Teir. So this explains because Simchas Teir came after Tshuva, after the break. Matan Teir happened before the, the golden calf, before the Chet, before the fall. And Yom Kippur comes after the fall and the Tshuva that, and therefore the great Simchas Teir is showing the indestructibility that comes only possible after something broke and it was fixed stronger than ever, never to be broken again. So what you have here is a beautiful and eloquent structure that can provide us with a blueprint for anything in life, any challenge, any issue we deal with is, can be addressed when you look at this whole map. Obviously there are many details, but that's the overall picture. We're going to talk more about it in detail throughout this program because it's a special Sukkot edition. 
But I want to begin with today itself, the day itself. And that is Yud Gimel Tishrei. That um, the Yud Gimel Tishrei, the day before, uh, tomorrow is Erev Sukkot. Tonight is Erev Sukkot. Sukkot will be tomorrow night. And so Yud Gimel Tishrei, the day before, is the yard site of the Rebbe Marash. The fourth Chabad Rebbe. It's actually the 139th yard site, the beginning of the 140th. He passed away in the year Tofresh Mem Gimel. We are now in Tofshin Pei Beis. Beginning of Tofshin Pei Gimel will be 140 years from that is Talkus. So there's many different things we can learn from uh, the Rebbe Marash. And I'll just, of course, the most popular one the Rebbe made when he said that Rebbe Marash symbolized and personified L'Chathchila Riber. Rebbe even gave the name, the song that we sing that's attributed to the Rebbe Marash, L'Chathchila Riber. But it was more than just the song. It was that his whole life personified that. A life of doing things, not beginning like he, the expression is the Veldzogt, the world says if you can't go below, you go above. And I say, go initially above. In other words, think big. And begin with big thinking. And the Rebbe Marash, actually, that was his form of behavior. The Rebbe, the Rebbe brings different stories, how the Tzemach Tzedek, whenever he received a gift, he would send it to Reb Marash, something of wealth. Not because that Reb Marash was necessarily into wealth, obviously, but because it was V'salcha Berchava. Very much the Reb often referred to the Balshemskan Hoge, the Reb Marash. Now, that, of course, was applied many, many times by the Rebbe of how everyone should approach their life. Don't think small, don't think how to, in a minimalistic way, think in a maximum way. You want to build something, build it much bigger. Obviously, Eir is the Teu and Kalem the Tikkun. It has to always be in a way that has some grounding. But to think big and to initially go with that approach. And when you look at it, the Rebbe himself and the Rabbeim, that was generally the approach. When there was a challenge, they didn't just shrink and say, okay, let's do the minimal, let's just salvage the situation. No, go to 1950, a few years right after World War II. You would think, okay, we have to first lick our wounds and start rebuilding. Yes, we have to do that, but most importantly, we begin right away. Rebbe initiates different shlichus to take the offense and not just be on the defense. In so many ways, this, this is applied. The Rebbe talked to people and responded to people when it came to questions about their own personal challenges or business investment or shlichus that always go with a lechatchila riber approach a type of confidence that you for sure can be successful. Don't go be overcautious. Now again, we're talking about being prudent. We're not talking about being reckless. It doesn't mean recklessness. It means just breitkeit, a broad way of thinking, expansiveness. And thinking, instead of thinking like, you know, I'm a loser or I don't know if I can be a winner, think like a winner and behave like a winner and then you, be, then you become a winner in that context. And what does this life and leadership, and how does his life and leadership impact us exactly that way? Besides, of course, the Maimori Chassidus that he wrote. And I can't say it's a besides, it's the main thing. And all the different directives that he gave, the Reb Marash, and the different lessons we can learn from him. But the Lachatchila Riber is perhaps the one that most captured it in a very specific way. There are many other things that can be shared. I just remember vividly Fabreng Yud Gimel Tishrei Tovshin Mem. 
for some reason that always stands out for me, that Fabrengen, because it was very unique. One of these uh, lost gems, I would say lost, most people are not aware of it. If you have a chance, listen to that Fabrengen, Yud Gimel Tishrei Tov Shemem. The Rebbe was a very lechat Fabrengen. Spoke about many topics and very, in a very expansive way. The one thing that jumps out at me, remember, was when he spoke about uh, that the Rebbe Marash brings in the in the Sichas, the Friedrich Rebbe quotes that Rebbe Marash was saying, the famous expression that the that the Rebbeim are structured like the Sfiris. Baal Shem Tov and Magid are Keser, Atik and Arich. The Alter Rebbe, they said, they said the Zayde which is um, the Elta Zayda, which is the, the Alta Rebbe, is Chochmah. The Zayda, Mitla Rebbe, is Bina. The Tate is Samech Tzedek Das. And then, later, the Fidik Rebbe adds that we go, that the Rebbe Marash is, is Netzach, the Rebbe Rashab Hoid, Fidik Rebbe Yusayd, and the Rebbe Malchus. The Rebbe hints to it about himself, but Malchus we say because it goes in that order. Why Chesed, Gvurat, Teferes are skipped? But most likely because Netzachet Yisait are the, are the implementation of Chesed, Gvurat, Teferes. So there you have it. And then the Rebbe Marash says, the Friedrich Rebbe says in the Sicha, when it's the Dafen Foren Sum Tatnun Heren was Tutzach. So the Rebbe asked the question, Yud Gimel Tishrei Tov Shem Mem. This would be 1979. That was the year when I began officially writing Fabrengens. So Tov Shemem is the 30th year of the Rebbe's leadership. It's a special year, Shnas Hashleishim. And the Rebbe said, what's the connection between the first part about the Sviris and the Rabbeim and the second part that now we have to go to my father, to go to the father to hear what's going on. So the Rebbe said, it's Pashat. He didn't say the word Pashat, but when you hear it, it's, it's, it's both amazing. He said, that Samach Tzadik, the Tate, is Das. Das is the Kavam Tzoy that goes up to Keser, Eila Ada Keser. So if you want to know what's Tutzach in Keser, by the Baal Shem Tov and the Machid, it's Tutzach in Keser, which is higher than Ishtalshul, is the root of it all, that from foreign Simtaten. So once he said that the father, my father, is Das, Yitzhadah from foreign Sadas to find out what's going on in Keser. Not to suggest that Chochmah Bina don't have access. But that's the Rebbe's way of the context of that. And it was something you don't hear every day in Fabrengens, that, uh, that idea, which is also a Lachadchila Ribbe type of approach, that at the Temple Marash, we go straight to Keser. In uh, simple language, Keser is a superconscious state. Keser is the Rotzen and Tainung of Hashem. Chochmeh and, and the below are the spheres that are the structure of existence. And the superstructure the so-called envisioning of that structure is only the desire and the pleasure of the divine. So you want to know what's going on, you have to go to that so-called to the engine room, which is Kesser. One word from Yud Gimel Tishrei, Tov When the Rebbe Ramadash passed away, which was on that day, it was right before Sukkot, so then there were no ways of really communicating. We don't have the, they didn't have the technology of today where you can just post something or pass it on. It came by word of mouth. So the, no one, most the, the chassidim in Lubavitch knew what happened. But those in other cities, the news slowly reached them. And since it was Sukkot, it took longer time. In Chernigov, where the Rav was, Radatz Chain, Rabdovitz Vichain, famous Rav, Chabad Chosid, um, 
heard the news on Eshayin Rabba. It got to Chernigov on Eshayin Rabba. And um, by uh, Hakafis, Leil Shminet says, the first night of Hakafis, so someone went over to Radatz and said to him, the Rebbe Zavek. When he heard that, he fainted. Avek. They couldn't revive him. They had to go to Akafis, the Rav. Whatever they did, they could not wake him up. He was lying there in a heap, and that's it. After trying everything, they said, maybe, well, we'll bring his father. Raperetzchein was his father. Raperetzchein, another Choshev Chosid. But he was already an older man. He was home. So he couldn't go to shul. Raperetz is the one that they say is the only person that saw six Rabbeim. He was a young child when the Alter Rebbe passed away, so he saw the Alter Rebbe as a baby. And he was already an older Chosid when the Friedrich Rebbe was born. So he saw the Alter Rebbe to the Friedrich Rebbe. So they took Raperetz to the shul. They carried him. They brought him there. And he saw his son, so he bent down, and he said to his son, Radatz, Raperet said to his son, A Rebbe gate came on Nishtavek. A Rebbe never leaves. The relevance of this story to us is quite obvious. Kimul Tammuz, A Rebbe gate came on Nishtavek. And that revived him, and he woke and went to Simchas Sure, still saddened, but knowing that our Rebbe is with us all the time. So Yud Gimel Tishri has that lesson as well to us. That in, even though we may not understand many things, but we have to understand that there are things that are nitzchim, there are eternal things that have, are not subject to mortality and not subject to the logic and the common sense of our structures that we usually apply to. And they survive in their own way, and they endure, I would say. Just as he served and led, then he leads, continues to lead. Doesn't mean we see it with, does not mean we see it with our physical eyes. But it brings me to another story that I'd like to share, that I heard, that I once read, actually. An old chassid, his name was Rav Kanikov. And he wrote it in a, in a Rashim, he wrote it in one of the in one of the pamphlets they published. And with the Rebbe Marash, the story is that there was um, the, in Lubavitch, you know, the Mittler Rebbe moved to Lubavitch and established the headquarters, so-called, the center of Chabad. And Lubavitch was there for six generations, Mittler Rebbe all the way to the Rebbe Rashab, five generations. In Tafresh involved due to World War I, and uh, the, it was close to the front line, so they were forced to leave. That's when the Rebbe Rashab left the Rastav after 101 years, 102, 101 years in, in Lubavitch. So in Lubavitch, today you go there, you only see remnants left. But in Lubavitch, the Rebbe, the Rebbeim, lived in their home, was connected to the shul. It was built like an L. So there were the homes where the Rebbe Rashab lived, Friedrich Rebbe lived after he got married in another apartment there before the Rebbe Rashab. The Rebbe Marash, that's a Machzedek, the middle Rebbe. Now there was a hall that connected the home to the, to the Zal. There was a big Zal, there was a Chedr Sheni. And, um, but the Rebbeim never went through that hall. They would go outside from their house, they went out and they would go into the Zal from the outside. One night, 
Rabbi Rachmiel was a chosid of the Rebbe Marash. He was also a chaver with him when they were children. They learned together. So he was Alter Chosid. He was sitting in the Chet Sheni, which was the, where the door was, that was never opened, was never very rarely used. The door that down the hall connects to the, the apartments of the Rabbi, of the Rebbe. Suddenly, around midnight time, he sees the door open, which is a rarity. And he sees the Rebbe Marash is walking out the door. He's, of course, he jumps up, he stands up, and he sees the Rebbe Marash is walking in a very awkward way. Now, of course, besides being a chassid, they also knew each other. So Rabbi Rachmiel notices that, and the Rebbe Marash sees that he's somewhat surprised what he's doing here and why is he walking in this strange way. Like he was walking like sideways. So, so Rebbe Marash says to him, nonchalantly, he says, Ich I'm escorting someone. Now, Rabbi Chimiel was not a simple uh, person. He says to the Rebbe Marash, the Rebbe to And where did the Rebbe learn to escort? He didn't say, I don't see anyone. He said, where did the Rebbe learn to escort? So Rebbe Marash says, he'll do that cell, and I'll tell you. And he told him, he says, when I was a child, I had a minig every night after Maidiv. I would go in and learn 15 minutes chassidus with my father. It's a machzedek. One night, I come to my designated time, and I see the doors closed. My father's door is closed. Now, when it was closed, it was usually because there were guests. If someone came to see the Samach Tzedek. But when there were guests, it was announced to the family beforehand. And here no one announced anything. The door's closed. It's my time to learn. I didn't want to compromise. I didn't want to give up my time. So I looked in the keyhole to see what's going on. And I see my father, Samach Tzedek, all this that Rabbi Marash is telling Rabbi Rachmiel. And I see someone else there, a guest, and from the appearance, it looked like my Zayda, the Mitla Rebbe, Samach Tzedek's father-in-law and uncle. But it was after Chaim Chay Yusuf Baal Medein. It was after his Istalkus. So Rebbe Marash says to Rabbi Rechmiel, I, I was not bashful. So I knocked on the door. My time to learn. So, you know, and also don't want to miss this, so to speak. Comes in. Samach Tzedek says, come. Goes in. Samach Tzedek says to the guest, he says, this is my Shmulik or Shmuel, his youngest son. So the guest says to uh, Samach Tzedek, and, and we have a schedule that we learn always after Mairev. So the guest says to, the, to my father, this is the Rebbe Marash saying, tell your son to say something, Ixidus. let me hear something. The Rebbe Marash says to the Rebbe Rechmiel, obviously in front of my father, my grandfather, I'm not going to say chesidus. So I said, let the guest say something, and I'll repeat it. Fine. And the Mitla Rebbe, the guest, began to say something about chesidus. Afterwards, no, repeat, and he repeated. And the guest said to my father, Dein Shmuel so good, good. He says, well, he says, repeating it, well, well, good, good. And then my father escorted the guest out of the room, that's where I learned how to escort. That's what the Rebbe Marash said. <laughs> Rabbi Rachmiel was not, uh, he was a Chabad Chosset. He didn't lose himself hearing such a story. He says to the, to the Rebbe Marash, so what was the Torah? What was the Chassidus that the Rebbe, that the guest said that you repeated? 
So meanwhile, someone walked into the Cheder Sheni, where they were speaking, a simpler person, and the Rebbe Marash said, Nishfa, yeah, it's not for now, I'll talk about it, we'll talk about it another time. The story's not over, one more detail. The next morning, the Rebbe Marash's two sons, the Razo and the Rebbe Rashab, wasn't Rebbe yet, but they were both children, came running in to Rabbi Rachmiel and said, what happened around midnight last night here? So he said, if you know, why are you asking? So they said, we want to know how much it was Bizgalus, how revealed it was. That's the story. So a Rebbe gave Kemlish Tavek. You have to know, the Rebbe knows how to baglate, the escort. Maybe we don't know exactly how to escort, but we know we have to live up to what the Rebbe gave us, the mandate, the instructions, the guidance, the directives, in every aspect of it. That lives, and we are Zari Bechayim, the arms and legs and the mouthpiece and the instruments to carry that out in this world. Yet another lesson from Yud Gimel Tishrei. Really a lesson from all the Rabbeim, but specifically this story captures it so well. So with that, let's move over now to Chassidus applied to, to Sukkis. So I have a bunch of questions that have come in. Try to cover as many as I can. And we'll begin with, let's start with Sukkah, then we'll move to Dalad Minim, then we'll talk about some general related Sukkah items. What is the spiritual significance of eating in a Sukkah? Well, the Pasuk says, Basukkah's taste for Shiva Syamin, you shall taste for Kain Taduru, you shall settle there, not just pass through as a tourist, but Kain Taduru, this becomes your place, your dira, for the seven days. We have the custom also, Shmini Atzeres, we eat Nasukkah. But the Pasuk says that, seven days. And the reason for it, Apit Pastus, because it says, Kibesukis, Sheshafte is B'nei Yisrael. This is brought in Shulchan Aruch, the reason. Laman Das, you should know, because I, I, I uh, protected the Jews when they left Egypt. Besukis, Sheshafte, B'nei Yisrael. So this is remembering what happened after they left Egypt. There are two opinions what that means, Besukis. Some Anani HaKovet, that God surrounded them by the clouds of glory that protected them. So Sukkah represents that. And others say, no, they actually built huts, actual Sukkah, actual huts. Now, the reason we eat in a Sukkah is for that reason, but it goes deeper than that, because that symbolizes the idea that we are dependent on God. So even though it's true when you live in a structure, in a home, it's also that way, but because a Sukkah is far more vulnerable, and the top of the sukkah, the schach, is porous, which means it's subject to the elements, rain and so on. And yet we sit there completely trusting God's embrace of us, as it was when the Jews left Egypt. That's the basic answer. The lessons in this are many. The obvious, most important lesson is to know where does security come from. Many people think security comes. I'll build my... Uh, my, my mansions and my palaces and my dungeons or my um, fortresses. Sometimes it can be a dungeon as well. And that protects us. So Sukkot reminds us, no, protection comes from above. Sila de Nusa, it's called. The shadow of faith. The Sukkot casts a shadow. The Schach casts a shadow. And there's, of course, many mystical meanings and spiritual meanings of Pichsidis. 
But above all, it's about that idea of being embraced by God and recognizing that. There's also the element of sukkahs I mentioned before that comes after Yom Kippur and Rosh Hashanah, revealing the deep energies that were generated in those days of awe. I'm not going to go through all the lessons, but that's the basic idea. And the lessons are many, and especially in our times where sometimes we feel vulnerable in the uncertainty around us. So sukkah reminds us. It reminds us where our true security comes from, not from man-made structures, but from divine, from faith, from divine protection. That's on a very basic level. The same question can be asked about the Dalad Minim, the species. So Chassidah says, After the first night we eat in the sukkah, the next morning, the mitzvah is to take the four species. So if sukkah is a makif, that surrounds us like an embrace, a hug, the Dalad Minim, the species, are internalizing it. That's the addition of the word lachem to now internalize that experience. And you internalize it through the four different species, which represent four different types of Jews, different types of people. The esrig is the taste, has taste and smell, represents the scholar, the one that has knowledge and Torah knowledge and mitzvahs. On the other extreme, the arava, doesn't have taste or smell, represents a simple person who doesn't have not a, a, a Torah, Torah knowledge or good deeds. Then there's the Hadassim and the Lulav. One has taste and no smell, and one has smell and no taste. The Lulav has no taste, but no smell, but it has a taste. And the Hadassim have a smell, but no taste. So one represents, taste represents the mitzvahs, the smell represents the mitzvahs. Taste represents the Torah. So you have all four categories. Torah and mitzvahs. No Torah and mitzvahs. Torah without mitzvahs. Mitzvahs without Torah. Now there's no such thing as someone without anything. But we're talking about primarily. And yet you bind them together by Aguda Achas, a unity, and internalize it. So this is now the divine makif, the divine transcendent energy, enters internally into each type of person, no matter who we are. That's a basic overall picture. They said there's, there are pages and pages in my mind about, about sukkah and the dal minim, but this is just briefly. So another question, why is sukkah not in the spring after Pesach? Based on what we just said, that represents and symbolizes the huts or the Ananiya Kovid. That happened right after Pesach. As soon as they left Egypt, that's when they were protected by God. So why do we sit in so then sukkah should come right after Pesach. So different reasons given for this. Generally four reasons. That, number one, that you want to, since sukkah is reminding of the faith we have in God, you don't want people thinking, oh, we went into sukkah because it's the spring season, it's the beginning of, of the warm season. So now we're going to sukkah to enjoy ourselves. You push the sukkah off in autumn, where it's starting to get colder and rainier and so on, to demonstrate that level of faith. That's one explanation. Another explanation is because Pesach is Chaga Oviv. That's when the beginning of the, is the beginning of, the, of, the, of the, the, the harvest season begins then. But the end of the harvest season, because that's when you start the planting and the sowing, Chaga Oviv. And, um, and Chaga Kotzer, when do you cut and harvest on Shavuos? And Chaga Osiv is when you actually bring it back home. So that's right then, when that food is coming and it's all ready. When you have to plant it, you have faith in God because 
that God should bless your crops. But by the harvest, once you have it already, you can argue, oh, you know what? I've already um, successful. I don't need to rely so much on God. So come sukkahs to remind us of that. A third reason is because even the Jews, in, when they left Mitzrayim, it was a spring season. So they didn't build huts according to the opinion of huts. The Anania covered was there from the beginning, right after they left Egypt. A little later, but right at, but close. But actual huts they didn't build, they didn't need to because it was warm season. They started building huts in the autumn. That's a third reason. And finally, especially a Pikabola and Chsidis, is because Sukkot comes as a revelation following Rosh Hashanah Yom Kippur. So in addition to everything I've said till now, is the idea that Sukkot comes to culminate the revelation of all that was experienced on Rosh Hashanah Yom Kippur. And the sukkah, as I mentioned before, the schach comes from the anani hakteris, from the cloud of the incense, and other connections that sukkah has to those days. Now, that's not a contradiction to what happened the first time. Because the first time, meaning the first year when they left Mitzrayim, because as I said, the real place of sukkahs began once they were dealing with the challenges in the wilderness, which came when the, winter, when the, when the summer ended, and more in the dark, in the colder months, or the, at least the rainy months in that season, when they uh, when it begins the autumn, which is why we eat in Sukkot and we spend time in Sukkot. So it's all connected to this particular time of the year. And finally, in that context, is also explained that as Sukkot concludes, and Shmini Yitzchak gives us the strength to enter into the, the colder and darker months of the winter. So it's, again, structured in a very eloquent way that we can understand the whole process from the beginning through the end, beginning when the Jews left Mitzrayim, 40, 49, 50 days later they received the Torah, then all the negative things that happened, the golden calf, God, Moshe Rabbeinu praying to God, finally gaining forgiveness, and then coming Sukkot. So you have a whole picture, a whole structure of how to deal with any type of challenge, both the ups and downs of life, all part of one larger narrative leading to a greater place. Is there a connection between sukkah and mikveh? Yeah, thank you, Rabbi, for your hard work and dedication in making this weekly Sunday night Torah class. I have a question regarding the sukkah. I once read that eating in a sukkah is a significant mitzvah because it is the only time our entire body is surrounded by the mitzvah. Correct. But then I thought mikvah is also a time the entire body is surrounded by the mitzvah. Is there a connection between these two mitzvahs? The answer is absolutely yes. Echsidus talks about the connection. Number one, like both are coming from the level of bina. Bina surrounds. Makifim de bina is the sukkah. And mikvah is also when you submerge yourself. And there's connections absolutely there. That there are mitzvahs that are in that sense where we get surrounded or submerged. Obviously they have distinctions Mikveh is one mitzvah and, uh, and sukkah is another, but they definitely have that commonality. In that same context, somebody writes, is there a concept of being surrounded by four walls representing being quarantined from the physical world, but still being able to see the heavens through the bamboo or schach roof, bamboo schach roof, and still having a connection to the heavens, i.e. God. Yes, it's all part of the same story. Different aspects of it, but it's all the same idea. 
of being surrounded, being vulnerable on one hand, but being protected by God. And it's a good point you make, that the schach is also there. It's not a, you have to be able to see the stars through it, even though in Chabad custom, schach is thicker. But nevertheless, it's not completely um, opaque in the sense where it's completely covered like a roof. It has to be schach. So there's both the element of having the el- being surrounded and also being aware, the awareness. And that's the point. The Dalit Minim, on the other hand, is more primius. So Makif and Primi is a very central, plays central roles in Judaism. You have, for example, the talus and Tzitzis. A talus surrounds, and Tzitzis is like thin strands. Again, Makif and Primi. You'll find that everywhere in Yiddishkeit, you'll find these two dimensions. Okay. In that context, sukkah, roof, and walls. Why can a sukkah be made of any material you want, but the roof can only be made of materials that grow from the ground? Is the roof of the sukkah more significant and important than the wall? And important than the walls? Is it a metaphor that our minds, which are the roof of our body, have to be kept pure? Okay, that I have not heard, but you could say something like that. So yes, the main thing of a sukkah comes from the word schach. Schach is connected to the word sukkah. The main thing of a sukkah is the schach, but obviously you need to have a structure. So the walls are, are critical. There, a sukkah without walls is not a sukkah. But the main thing that, that symbolizes the sukkah is the schach, and that's actually the most vulnerable part. Because if it rains, it comes from the roof, from the, from the schach. The schach itself represents vegetation. It's not coming from any inanimate objects. You can't put wood or, um, well, wood is also, frankly, also vegetation, but wood is considered not schach because it's the tree, not the, you need to have the, the, brand, the, the growth, the green that grows on the trees, whether it's pine trees or other forms of, of greenery. And it represents the idea of certain aspect of growth, that it's not just an inanimate structure. In a building that you build out of bricks or mortar, everything is inanimate, everything is doimem. Here you want to have a representative of something that is also a higher level of life force, which is semeach. Now it's true, it's no longer semeach in the sense that it continues to grow, that's why you can't just put a tree that's alive, it has to be cut, but it still has that element in it, and it also demonstrates something that is subject to change. Inanimate things like stones don't change, and semeach is constantly growing. And it changes, even when you cut it, it also is changing in the sense where it begins to wither at some point, which is all part of the vulnerability that we're supposed to experience in trusting God in the whole process. Okay. So that answers that question. Beautifying the sukkah. Why is it, why is Chabad custom not to beautify the sukkah? So you have the concept of noy sukkah. So the Rebbe has an interesting letter where he writes an English letter to someone who asked that question and said, and of course we don't in any way, uh, in any way denigrate God forbid or you know, not, not a narrow pashta, different Jews, different communities have different customs. But as far as Chabad, he says because Chabad tries to focus on called the poshit mailatve, the simple, that when you're serving God, not to have necessary adornments. You see this consistently also, the talus of Chabad doesn't have a crown on it, and other things that Chabad tries to keep it as simple as possible. Again, this does not take away from other approaches, different minhagim, just like there are different minhagim in how piyutim are said during Rosh Hashanah and Yom Kippur, some say very many, Chabad has less. 
the same idea that you try to keep and go to the core, that when you're sitting in a sukkah, it's you and God without distractions that, are, that can be, yes, they're, they're beautified, they're beautiful, but sometimes the beauty can be somewhat of um, a distraction. So you keep it simple, as simple as possible. Now, of course, there are the concept of hasnob uh, mitzvahs, to make mitzvahs beautiful, mitzvahs should be beautiful, esrig is a priyets hadar, a beautiful esrig. So, of course, there are, there's an aspect in Judaism and Torah that emphasizes beauty, and the concept of beauty is a, is a positive. But then there are areas where we focus on the simplicity of it and not to be distracted by other elements and, and uh, that, that can sometimes say, okay, you're doing it because it's beautiful, not because it's what God's rotsin is. And that's why you have both. You have chukim, edus, and mishpatim. You have mitzvahs that, are, that make sense and are logical and rational. And there are mitzvahs that are specifically meant to be just pure desire of God, even if you don't understand the reason or the so-called beauty that comes from it even though obviously everything beautifies us and refines us. So that's the brief answer to that question. Someone, I guess in writing, I guess, tongue-in-cheek, which is fine, you want to be a little humorous and amusing, I'll read this, dear Rabbi Jacobson, it's very clear that if we listen to the Rebbe and his teachings, that Mashiach will come. Therefore, it is also understood that if we don't listen, then that is what is preventing Mashiach. So I was wondering whether I should even read this, but I'll read it. The Rebbe has made it clear that it's not Chabad custom to put decorations in the sukkah. So if someone hangs decorations in their sukkah against the teachings of the Rebbe, they should know that they are personally responsible for delaying Mashiach. Well, you know, I think you're going to be, again, I hope this person is just being a little uh, tongue-in-cheek. Uh, I would not begin with that, listening to the Rebbe, listen to the Rebbe and spread chassidus, spread Yiddishkeit and Torah, I wouldn't begin with this thing. I would not say someone puts decorations that they're holding up Mashiach. That's not what I would say. And so if you mean it seriously, I, uh, now, obviously there's a mini Chabad, and we follow them in Oge Chabad. But I wouldn't go to this extreme. I think it's a little, first of all, negativity is not a good approach in general. And secondly, there are, as I said, we have to know how to prioritize. Anyway, I don't want to read the rest of it because it's... <laughs> It's, it's all part of this humor of uh, someone who's t- sick and tired of, of seeing all these scofflaws who are decorating the sukkah. <laughs> as, as I said, I don't want to read the rest of it, but you get the idea. Okay. Now, the next question is this sukkah is related. What is the meaning of the Gemara that the future non-Jews will be tested with the sukkah and they will refuse to sit in it because of the heat? And what is its message for us today? Yeah. Is there a teaching that in Messianic times the non-Jews will be given opportunity to do the mitzvah of sukkah, but will refuse because they complain about the weather conditions and say it's too hot? In that case, is our current, in our current times, if some Jews complain that it's too hot and humid to eat in the sukkah, can it be assumed that these people are descendants of, of converts? I'm only smiling. No, absolutely not. You know, people sometimes say things, you know, it's hot, they say it's hot. Okay, let's, let's talk about it on a serious note. The Gemara Nevedah talks about right in the beginning, talks about the, the, in the future, all the nations will be judged for their behavior. Why didn't they receive the Torah? They argue with God about it and so on and so forth. But the long story short, at the end of it, God says, okay, let me give you a mitzvah kala, an easy mitzvah, and let's see what happens. He gives them the mitzvah of sukkah, and because sukkah is sometimes in the heat, 
even though, as I said before, it's not in the heat of the summer, it's in autumn, but in that part of the region of the world, it could be quite warm. And they refuse because of the heat. So even a mitzvah kala, God says, you see, he gave you the opportunity. Now the whole Gemara sounds a little strange, but you have to really see the whole context of the whole Gemara there. So let me just give you one take on it, one explanation. The Gemara brings there the concept, the idea, that when Hashem gave the Torah to the Jewish people, He first offered it to the nations. And they looked inside the Torah, they refused because it was too... Well, they couldn't accept upon themselves. In some places it says they showed it to Bnei Yishmol and Bnei Esav. And they looked and they said, it says, do not murder, it says, do not, do, do not be sexually inappropriate, do not steal. And they said they couldn't, different, different nuschoyes, they couldn't accept it. So then God went to the Jews and they said, Nasev we accept it all. The Gemara addresses this whole issue there. Question is, why did God show it to the Jews, to the non-Jews first? Why did he offer it to them? And what happens if they would have said, yes, let's take it? What, was, what would happen? The Jews just suffered hundreds of years of exile and bondage and pain and genocide in Egypt. Oh, you know what? I happened to offer the Torah to someone else. The whole purpose of leaving Egypt was to serve God, receive the Torah. Abraham, Isaac, Jacob, Avram, Yitzhak, Yankov were promised a promised land, that your grandchildren will come out from Egypt. I mean, it was clear that the Jewish people were going to receive the Torah. Suddenly God is offering it. So different answers are given. To, to say that God knew they would refuse it, so what's the point? I mean, like the non-Jews said, what, what are you, what's the point? So one of the explanations given, based on the Zohar, is because God was preparing them, because at the end of the day, the Torah is universal for all human beings. The Tayag Mitzvah is talking not for all. But the Sheva Mitzvah, which was also due, given at Mount Har Sinai. And that's how it's supposed to be taught to the non-Jews that they should know it was given by, by the Hashem to Moshe Rabbeinu and Har Sinai, at Sinai. That too has to ultimately affect the entire world. And especially Bnei Yishmol and Bnei Esau are children of Avram and Yitzchak respectively. And ultimately it would. With the birth, as the Rambam says, with the birth of Christianity and Islam, they both came to pave the way toward Mashiach, toward unity. Albeit there are flaws, but nevertheless, So in a way, God offering it was like paving the way, was like so-called softening the path that they ultimately would embrace, especially the laws, Leisitzach and Leisignev and Leisinov, which is part of the moral laws of, of civilization, the Sheva Mitzvah B'nei the seven Noahide universal laws. So that's why he offered to them. Knowing, yes, that, that they wouldn't accept it yet, but there will be the day they will. So God's offer has significance. It's not just offer, they reject, and so on. In the Gemara Avedazar, when it discusses this, that's the, the, if you think about it, if you look at the story, that's what God is saying. Did you accept my path? And they didn't accept it initially. So for that, there is a, uh, there's, there's retribution. Now, what's this thing with sukkah? Why sukkah? Why not another mitzvah? And why the heat? Because sukkah represents two things. It's a mitzvah kala on one hand. It doesn't require fasting all day, let's say, yeah, like Yom Kippur. Or other mitzvahs that require a lot of difficulty. You build a sukkah, you sit in it. On the other hand, it requires you to give up your comfort zone. Because 
as we spoke about before, you're exposed to the elements. It's not your mansion, your home, your palace. It's a portable hut. It can rain. It can be hot. So what Hashem was showing them was this. Connection to me requires, the mitzvah can be an easy one, but it requires getting out of your comfort zone. Avram Yitzhak Yankov, the Jewish people, showed me they get out of their comfort zone. It wasn't just about them. So even though, yes, it took time for them to accept it, the generations, but by Matan Teda, Nasev because they had a relationship with God, they know we are ready to completely trust you. And in turn, God trusts them. So the sukkah represents those both ele- that element of getting out of your comfort zone, being vulnerable, and trusting something greater. Ah, it's too hot. That means that you're not ready yet. But that too is not a lesson to reject them because we know when Mashiach comes, all the nations of the world, the whole world will be occupied with knowing God. All the nations. But to get to there requires these prices to be paid. And you know something? It, it, they were paid. If you look in history, today you have nations, Gentile nations, non-Jewish nations, that are malchus chesed that embrace these laws. Individually, individually, everybody has their challenges. But it's become institutionalized concepts of freedom. And the Jewish people, of course, have benefited from it. So we're living in very different times. And it's not just dog eats dog, that the nations of the world have also begun to embrace universal principles, divine principles of what it means to live up to our destiny and our mandate, to God's mandate. So the lesson for us is very clear as well. We also have to look at it that way. The whole point of Torah mitzvahs is to help us have a relationship to a reality that's greater than our own comfort zones and our own feelings. Obviously, we need to be part of the process. And that is one of the lessons we can learn from this uh, story. Dear Rabbi Jacobson, if Hashem wanted us to enjoy our time in the sukkah, why did he create mosquitoes and bees to torment us and ruin it for us? There's no room in the sukkah for insects and us. It is our community's custom not to sleep in the sukkah so that we can have a relief from the insects and the often rainy nights. Or is there a more spiritual reason? Thank you and have a happy sukkah. It's an interesting question, but this is a question you can ask about anything. Um, why we have all kinds of challenges when it comes to doing a mitzvah. So, not sure exactly what you're, what you're asking in this context. I mean, I will say this. The, the, uh, in Sanhedrin, the Mishnah does ask the question why the human being was created last when he's, when, he's, when he's the crown jewel. And one answer is given because first you set the table, then you invite the special guest. But there's another reason given that a person should know that even a lowly insect, that even a lowly insect, a mosquito, preceded you. Which means that if a person behaves in a, an appropriate way, don't think you're so special. Even an insect did not defy God's will and was created before you. So maybe insects sometimes remind us of certain things to have that humility. Just a thought in the context of things. Um, so the fact, yes, the mitzvah, the fact that, we're, that we don't sleep in the sukkah for Chabad, 
because the whole sikh of the Rebbe from Tavshan Lamed and printed already, because Mitzdaya Potem in Asukah, because of the, the pain or discomfort a person is Potem from Sukkah, and the whole longer explanation, which I'm not going to go into right now. Um, look, if a person is in Asukah and it's such a, to a point you cannot eat or drink because there's some type of plague of insects, it's one thing. But to have here and there a nuisance is not necessarily be called necessarily Mitzdaya. Just to add that point. Okay. Now, a few more questions about sukkah, since it's a special sukkah's program. Why do we shake the lulav? Are, are the customs on sukkahs to gather and shake a lulav and esrim merely a symbolic gesture? As part of a harvest festival? Thanking God for a successful agricultural year? Or are there deeper spiritual meanings? Well, let's start with the, the, the waving of, of course, waving, the, the nanuyim and the waving, where we shake by halal and all different directions. So the Gemara in Sukkah actually gives two reasons for it. One is, it's drawing that everything in all directions is coming from Hashem. So you don't just hold the lulav and the esrug and the dal minim together. You also draw it and extend, extend it, which is a form of drawing that, and, and revealing both Hamshacha and Halah and Hamshacha, both outward and return, which is a sheikh with the Nanuyim, to represent that God's presence is in everything. The second reason is because it symbolizes that we want to draw down the healthy rains and dew. So it's all about Hamshacha. And Hamshacha is represented by, waving, by a wave. In Kabbalah, Chassidus talks about this at length in different details what directions, that you see it in all, in all different directions that we wave. But it also comes down to being that it's not, it's not stationary, that a mitzvah is alive, a chaybahem, that it actually is alive, and waving demonstrates that it's not inanimate, that it's not just stationary, but it's fluid and movement. So that's a second aspect to the, to the story. So that's the basic reason, and in that there are many other aspects to it, but let's suffice with that. Next question. Hello, Rabbi. Why does, why does a sukkah's esrug cost $100 when its cousin, the lemon, can be found in the supermarket for 50 cents? How do we justify the, 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 the act of prouse gouging? Can we put a scarlet letter on the forehead of those esrug profiteers so we know if they come into our deli, we could charge them $100 a pound for coleslaw instead of the normal $4 a pound? Well, not exactly. First of all, There's, there's time and effort and energy invested in finding esregim and cutting the proper esregim, and not just for one day. People travel to Italy or to Israel or wherever the esregim are brought from, and they have, to make, they have to deal with the farmers to make sure it's grown properly. It shouldn't be murkav. An esreg has to be uh, an esreg that is pure and not mixed with other seeds of other fruits and many, many other things. It needs hashgacha, essentially. So there's investment involved here. A lemon is a lemon. No pun intended. So the, that investment has to be covered. Now for someone to create prowse gouging and pr- charge prices that are completely astronomical and ridiculous, that's inappropriate in any given situation. That's number one. Number two, we have the mitzvah pre-eats chadr. That esrik should be a beautiful esrik. And a beautiful esrik requires, again, there's a supply and demand, 
and as a result, there's a, there's a price, and, and the people selling it, and all the work that went in, deserve to make some profit. When I say some profit, again, in the Torah, Masa, Matan, Bamuna way, in a faithful way. So that's why it's not comparable. But at the same time, obviously, to take advantage of people is not appropriate, and that comes down to all the laws of Torah that tell you how the laws of commerce, of selling and buying, to make sure it's fair. People are entitled to a fair amount of markup, but only a fair amount. So that's the key difference. But I understand the, the being upset because we do see sometimes people taking advantage, and it's not takatoyedik if they do that, whether it's with the Sregim or it's with Pesach prices or other things that take advantage of, you, of people who, uh, who, 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 especially people who may be struggling and not that easy for them to purchase things and they don't have the money and so on. Okay. Esrig from Italy. Why do we use an Esrig from Italy instead of from Israel? Don't forget, Italy was part of the Axis and partners with Germany in the war. As a partner, they are equally responsible for what the Nazis did to us. They fought the Allies so their friends in Germany could continue their genocide. Just like we boycott Volkswagen and other German companies to punish them, we should also boycott anything produced in Italy so they don't profit from it. Well, the custom of, of Calabria, from Italy, from special regions in Italy, goes back long before World War II and long before any Italian atrocities. goes back to a minig that the Rebbe brings in Sefer Amin Hagim. In the time of Moshe Rabbeinu, he sent messengers to go bring Esregim from Italy. Now, why Italy? There are different explanations. Some say that it's taking the place where Lumulum Yamots, Esav, Rome, and it's a type of transformation of it. But regardless, that's, that's the Kabbalah that goes back a long time. And that's why Minich Chabad, Ramachpid, tried to get... That doesn't mean an Esrik from Israel and from other places is not kosher. As a matter of fact, some Esrikim in Israel are taken from the seeds of Calabria and Italy. But regardless, there is something about it. It has nothing to do with the, the wars and so on. It's not about punishing or rewarding Italians. Just like if you drink Italian wine. So, you know, if it's kosher wine, then fine. So it's not that approach. But as far as punishing through not buying products, I don't know if the word punishing is the right word. Some people don't have, it's, not, it's distasteful to go buy something from a country that hurt us and so on. But here we're dealing with something that goes far back beyond the wars. And we can't say that a war, World War II, suddenly should change this cabal that happened in the time of Moshe Rabbeinu and been custom that goes back thousands of years. Okay. Simchas Beis HaSheva. What is Simchas Beis HaSheva, and why did the Rebbe reinstitute, reinstitute the celebration? What is the importance of dancing outdoors in the street instead of inside our warm, dry synagogues? Well, Simchas Beis HaSheva is a sugi in Gemara, that when they drew the water for the Mizbeach, for the altar in Beis HaMikdash, they would dance all night as they carried the water. So even though we don't have a base Amigdash today, the concept always remained, and the Rebbe Tak and Tovshin Memala, but even before that, the Rebbe would fabrang Simchus Beis HaSheva over all the years. So it was always known there's a Simchus Beis HaSheva, but it was more spiritual. Like many things in the Beis Amigdash that we did, either we remembered, we danced, we fabranged on Simchus Beis HaSheva. But in Tovshin Memala, 
The year was 1980, Sukkot 1980. The Rebbe began, was a year of Hakel, which is a year that comes after Shemitah. We're now in a year of Shemitah. Next year will be Hakel. And Hakel, the Rebbe began talking Sikhs every night of Sukkot, and that's when he instituted the dancing, especially in the streets. Which shows the celebration is not just internal, but actually affects the entire environment. And indeed, you see, since instituting the Simchas of Beshe'eva, the dancing in the streets, it's affected thousands, if not hundreds of thousands of people in a unity, in a show of unity and celebration and agdus and so on. And the Rebbe would speak about it since Tov Shem every year, every night, Sukkot. And that's essentially the, the story. Now, in part of the discussion, what is Simchas Beshe'eva, the Simcha for Mayim, water, in contrast to wine. So there's many explanations of what exactly is the power of the simcha, the simple simcha, because usually simcha is connected to yain, yain levav, yismach levav enesh. Yain makes someone happy in simcha. Water doesn't make you joyous. When you drink water, it doesn't do anything to you. But it's the joy of doing God's mitzvah, the simple joy, like I spoke before, about simplicity. And many more explanations, which uh, we'll talk about another time. Another final question about Yom Tif. I love Yom Tif. However, there is one part of Yom Tif I find challenging. It is the eating. First of all, I'm a light eater. Comes Yom Tif, it's Kiddush, wash, Kiddush, wash, etc. I always want to wash because I do feel like it brings the family together when we all wash. And, and if, as the father doesn't wash, then every kid could say they won't wash and the family meal falls apart. You can say don't eat so much, but as you know, that's not always so easy. And, if, and, if, and it is not even so much about the eating, it's the washing for bread for every meal. Sometimes I simply don't feel like eating or washing. Yet I have to because it's time for Kiddush. With all the holidays coming up, can you give some guidance on how to stay happy and healthy this year? Well, you're not alone. Many people have this challenge and dilemma. So firstly, Yom Tov is not here to hurt us, to hurt our diets, and to uh, indulge in. Yontiv is a ruchnizdike energy coming from heaven that gives us an opportunity to connect our souls to what God wants of us. Now, because we live physical souls inside, live souls inside physical bodies, so one of the ways we celebrate is that the body should also come along in the celebration. But let's not forget it's a spiritual celebration. So the first thing, from a Teirah Chassidusha point of view, you don't have to indulge. Washing doesn't mean you have to eat a whole challah. There's certain, you could control yourself. I know it's a, it's a test, it's a challenge. You know? So each person has to make a decision. Those of us that are really challenged, so there are ways, just like during the week, people who overeat or indulge don't have a problem only on Yom Tov. They have a problem all the time. Yom Tov is maybe more challenging because you're home, more meals, more delicacies, etc. So it comes back down to the, the, to the discipline that a person has. But above all, if you understand the significance of a yontif, you understand it's not about the eating and drinking. The eating and drinking is not the ikka, even though it could seem that way. You know, all these special meals, special the, the recipes. The ikka is, as the Baal says, the letter God sends to us, and we want to celebrate, so the only way to celebrate with the body that it shouldn't distract us is by saying to the body, here, have something to eat, have something to drink. But the truth is, this is a divine letter from God to us to remind us about our connection. 
So the more you can learn chassidus about the Yom Tif, I would suggest that may be the best way to spiritualize your experience so it becomes less materialistic. Is it guarantee? Guarantee. You can also have to have discipline. Absolutely. With all the Kiddushim and really exercise that. So maybe that's also part of the test of Yom Tif. I don't have more to say on this because we can't, we're not going to suddenly forbid and prohibit washing and eating meals. That's part of the Yom Tif. So the only way to do it is to do it and sublimate it and uh, tame it and harness it toward the best way possible. Okay. I have so many more questions. See, time has run out. Okay, so let me just conclude with the Chassidus question. How does Chassidus explain Sukkot? So, so we've discussed many, many angles and, and, and aspects of this before. What I do want to add is, I spoke earlier about Sukkot, that after Rosh Hashanah Yom Kippur comes Sukkot, the simcha, the joy, and the revelation of the Yom and So there's the Gilu Berada, it's more concealed, then it's revealed in Sukkot. In Revelation itself, the way Chassidus explains, Al-Pi there's a makif and primi. Everything begins, first you're surrounded by it, then it's internalized. Just like when you learn something. First it's a little over your head, and then you internalize it. Like the Alter Rebbe explains in Vyadaita, Veschanan, Lukutatera, that yesterday's amuna becomes today's das. And now amuna goes to higher level. So we're always in a process of the things that transcend and are above us, beyond us, which is critical for all growth, to sense that there's something that's not all about you, and, but it's also critical to internalize. So the part of sukkah that is makif is the sukkah itself. The dalad minim is the internalization. The dalad minim itself, I mentioned that there's the four different categories. They represent four different types of personalities and four different types of archetypes. So basically everything is covered in sukkahs in that sense. Simcha itself, Simcha Peretz Geder, Simcha is able to transcend boundaries. You see, when a person is joyous, they're not in their limited, their usual limited constraints. They dance, they celebrate, they're more open-hearted, they invite everybody, they're all embracing. Because Simcha has that ability to transcend structure. Sukkot is about transcending structure. The truth is Rosh Hashanah Yom Kippur is the ultimate transcendence of structure. But then it's still subdued in silence, in humility, in quiet, in color white. Sukkot is in a very broad and expansive way. As we spoke about Simcha's Beis HaSheva and all the other levels of Sukkot and Simcha. And every day Sukkot, we grow in this Simcha, Mailam B'Kadosh, until the apex comes, Shmini Atzeres, Simcha's Teda, the highest level of Simcha, literally, the demonstrating, as I mentioned, the indestructibility that after everything we've gone through, there's nothing can destroy us. In, we become invulnerable because we have now embraced. And it's ironic and paradoxical in a way. We sat in a sukkah which is so vulnerable. And that, when you're able to embrace vulnerability and celebrate your vulnerability, that's what makes you invulnerable. Because you're connecting to something, to the real true source of security, which is the Ebershter himself. Hashem Tzilcha. God is your shadow. God is your protector. He hovers. So Sukkot has many, many lessons. Chassidus talks about it in so many different ways. These are some of them. And I want to conclude in this special My Life Chassidus Applied, episode 372, that everyone should have a Chag Sameach, a real true Zman Sim Chaseinu, Moedim Le in general, Zman Sim a time of joy. 
Yusmach Hashem b'mchaseinu is Lashon Rabim, our joy. Yusmach Hashem b'maisov, Yusmach Hashem b'esov, Yusmach Yisrael b'esov, Yusmach Hashem b'maisov, Hashem celebrates with us his creations. We celebrate with our creator in a joint, a joint union of dance and celebration. And it should be only a year of Simcha b'teva nirva nigla, tovshim pei beiz, ployes bakoel, wonders and everything, Wonders are also like simcha beyond structure, and everyone should have a very good yontif. The next program, we won't have one next week. The next one will be in two weeks from now, 8 to 9 p.m. every Sunday, except during holidays. Everyone have a good gebench to Zyar, a good gebench to Sukkis, Zman Simchasenu, and simcha that extends all year round and forever. Thank you. This program is brought to you by My Life, Hasidus Applied. Please help us continue our programs. Make even a small contribution at hasidusapplied.com slash donate.